Well, as Lanny mentioned, Pastor Matthew is out at our sister church at Harvest Annapolis this week. My name is Matt Rumbaugh. My wife, Christy, and I lead a small group that meets in Random Hills. Can I hear some love? Where are you? There we go. There we go. And I, and I serve as one of the elders. So we are really grateful that Matthew can be at that church this morning. Harvest Annapolis is one of our partner churches in the Great Commission Collective. And they, uh, as a church, and specifically their pastor, Dan Hammer, has been a good friend to us. So we're grateful. We are, we're a little jealous. We don't like to share him if we don't have to, but we're grateful that he can be with them today. And so, so I'm here, and you're here, and we'll just get this to, we'll get through this together. You with me? All right, let's do it. Well, we are going to continue our series in the book of Acts. Today we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. If you have your Bible or you're using a device, feel free to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, kind of this table over here that is to my left, you're right, there's some copies there. You're welcome to step out and, and grab one of those. It's our, and, and just take it. Take it home with you. It is our gift to you. Now, this part of the series in the book of Acts we're calling Unstoppable. As we look at the, the early church and the first set of resistance that they face, how they keep going through their mission. When we did the first two chapters in the book of Acts with the title we used was Origin Story. And I have to say, I really love that. I thought Pastor Matthew was really creative when he did that. I'm a sucker for a good story. Maybe many of you are too. I don't know, Lord of the Rings, all the Marvel movies. I'm not a Marvel guy. My daughter loves the Marvel movies. I haven't sunk my teeth into those yet. But Star Wars, we love stories, right? And so in our passage today, we're going to look at a critical moment in the story of the early church. Any good story has characters. We've met some of them. We're going to, meet a, uh, we're going to reintroduce ourselves to Peter and John today and some others. Uh, any good story has a plot that you want to follow. You want to keep seeing what happens next. And any good story has conflict. And we got our first taste of that last week when Peter and John had performed a miracle. They had healed a man who had been lame for many, many years. And when word got out about this miracle, they were arrested and brought before the priests and officials in the Jewish temple. And they received a stern warning not to do anything like that again, not to speak in the name of Jesus, not to perform any miracles in his name. And as Pastor Matthew showed us last week, we can learn from this that when we speak and proclaim in the name of Jesus, we are like to, uh, to face opposition. In fact, he said it's inevitable. So whether it's power dynamics or skepticism of Jesus' claims or just outright rebellion against God's authority, not everyone is on board with this idea that Jesus is the Son of God and the rightful King of the world. So we have a, a conflict here, and it begs the question, how are our characters going to respond? So if conflict is a part of any good story, the part that you want to see is how the characters actually respond to that conflict. Do they wilt and fade away, or do they keep going? And then what happens next in the story? And today we're going to get a look at that. We'll see how our characters respond. In fact, that's our big idea today. So Dan will put it on the screen for us. Even even against opposition, we should boldly tell the story of Jesus. We should boldly tell the story of Jesus. So let's read our passage together, and I hope you guys will bear with me here. I do need to read, use reading glasses. The print in my Bible is too small for these purposes, so bear with me here. Again, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Let's read this together. When they were released, and we're speaking of Peter and John here, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Okay, so right after they were harassed and and got a stern warning, their first response, what is the first thing that they do after this happens? Let me hear it. What's the first thing they do? They go tell their friends. They go tell their friends what had happened. This makes sense. When something unusual happens to me, the first thing that I usually do is call my wife and say, hey, you're not going to believe this crazy thing happened to me. Or there's somebody that I want to tell. When I run into something that's an unusual circumstance or funny or just weird or something like that, I want to tell somebody what happened. So that's the first point this morning is the sign of a good story is we can't wait to tell someone else. Let me give you an example. So I'm at work one day. And uh, I got in the elevator, and uh, you, guys, you guys normally do the drill with the elevator, so, so bear with me. I'm going to role play this a little bit here. So I walk onto the elevator, and I do what I normally do. I push the floor button for my floor, and I move my way to the back corner. This is normal elevator behavior, right? You guys with me here? So I'm in there one day. I'm all by myself. I'm minding my own business, and again, I push the button. It says here. I'm just waiting for my floor. Do, 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 do. We don't have elevator music in my building, but, you know, maybe there's music. Elevator stops, dings, somebody walks on, and they do this. Now remember, I'm back here, right? Back, right, left, whatever the orientation is. So this is me. You with me? This is really important. Okay. This is what happens next. Just in case you didn't get it, let me try it again, okay? So again, me, this person. What is that? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they seem like they're a reasonably responsible person. They're, they're in a you know, place where business is done, and they get on the elevator, and they do this. To this day, I have no idea what they were doing. I have no idea if they were, like, afraid or playing a prank on me, if they thought there was, like, candid camera or something. I don't know. But what's the first thing I did? I go back to my office mates, and I say, you are not going to believe what happened to me on the elevator two seconds ago. And we digest, and we're like, da-da-da, and we're having fun. And so all the rest of the day, we would just do this to each other. (laughs) It's funny. It's unusual. And again, I have no idea. I have no idea what this person was doing. The point is, when this thing happened to me, I could not wait to share this story with someone else. So when I go tell someone a story, it's often to commiserate or digest or try and understand or something like that. We might discuss a little bit. Why do you think they did that? I have no idea why they're standing in an elevator like this. That's really weird. But anyway, but this crowd, this crowd, they don't do that, or at least Luke doesn't record for us that they did that. Instead, they go right to prayer. Look at what it says in the text. It says, they lifted their voices together to God and said. So we can see that prayer is their first response. Would that be yours? I'm not sure it would be mine. 
If somebody, you know, my religious authorities or somebody called me in their office, read the riot act at me, I'm not sure my first response would be prayer. I'd like to think so, but I'm not that confident. To, to my shame, I'm a bit of a complainer. Maybe you guys are too. When something happens to me, I get a little outraged. I like a good vent. I'm going to be like, can you believe what these people did? We need to call a good lawyer or, or something like that. What gives them the right? I'm going to like start digesting this. Event. Or maybe if it's a moment like this and like, hey, bad things are going to happen to you if you do this again, maybe I start thinking of an exit strategy. Maybe I'm like, this is a little tougher than I thought it would be. Maybe we need to like relocate to like, I don't know, some other city, Damascus or something where there's going to be uh, less opposition. But they don't do that. It says they lifted their voices together. But it's not just that they pray, what they pray and how they pray are really instructive to us. So let's look at that together. In fact, that leads us to our second point, which is remember the hero of the story. Remember the hero of the story. So back in our text, look at what they say. They say, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So let's look at this term, sovereign Lord. In the English there, it's a little, it's a sort of generic descriptor, but in the Greek, that word is despotes. I practice saying that, despotes. Uh, it's a term that means a ruler with absolute unchallenged authority. We get our word despot from it. If you guys watch the, the news, you probably re- heard it referred to somebody like uh, maybe Kim Jong-un of North Korea or like a, a, you die, like a dictator type around the word. In the Greek, it's not that sinister. In the culture that we're talking about this morning, it's not quite so sin- sinister. It's, uh, it doesn't have the evil sort of sinister connotation that we might attach to it. It's, used for the t- it's the term that you use for the person around who is clearly in charge. So it would sometimes be used uh, in, uh, with regard to the Roman Caesar. Uh, household slaves would often use it to address their master. So it's a term that acknowledges this is the person, the person we are referring to as despotes, is the one who is in charge. There's no question about it. His authority is unquestioned, unchallenged. There's no debate about who's in charge here. And that's the term that our friends use here. So when they use this term to open their prayer, they're saying, hey, God, all these other so-called rulers have nothing on you. You, oh God, you, you are the one with absolute unchallenged authority. You are the one whose opinion matters here. Not Caesar, not these priests, not these temple guards, nobody. You are the one in charge. So we're going to look at who you are and we're going to follow your direction. They go a little bit deeper down this hole because look at what they say. They say he made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. In the biblical imagination, they have just described everything that exists. The heavens, all the stuff in the sky, the earth, everything down here, the sea. We don't have submarines yet. We don't really know what happens over there. But even the, that whole thing and all the creatures in it, everything that exists, God is the maker of it. And he is in position to see how things go. So uh, I went to grad school right down the street here at George Mason. We have Mason people in the house. Oh, come on. I thought I was going to get a little more than that. Mason people in the house? Okay, that's a little better. Yes, thank you. Come on, go Patriots. You got this. Yes, so I got my MBA there. One of my favorite classes was intellectual property. Um, And so how you use like patents and stuff. The main thing that I learned in that class is that I would be a terrible patent attorney. So good there. Uh, But I was really fascinated with the idea. And so one of the things that we learned is that the framers of our constitution 
they, they foresaw a day when there would be lots of inventions and machines, so people would be gathering knowledge and then using them to, to invent things like, you know, automobiles. They probably didn't know what an automobile was, but they would be automating things. And, uh, and so they wanted to be the U.S. to be a place of uh, intellectual, economic advancement, but they knew that if there's no monetary reward for doing this type of research and in inventing new things, few people would be in position to take a risk. And so they actually wrote it into our laws that the maker or creator of a thing is the one who has the right to expect value from it. So if I make an invention, I'm the one who has the right to, to make money on that. Cody can't just like take that and be like, oh, Matt just did a good thing here. I'm going to start selling that. No, I have the right. Cody can't just take it and run with it. He has to check with me first. So that takes the form of patents and trademarks and things like that. So now there's a lot of things I could do with it. I could sell it to Cody or Nathan or somebody like, here, I've invented this thing, but here, you go make money on it. I can give you a license to do that. I can sell it outright, or I can trade on it myself. But the point is, whatever form that commerce or, or activity takes, I'm the one with the primary right to it. That's actually embedded in our law. It's the same thing here. Because God is the maker of all these things, he's the maker of heaven and earth, and he's the one who puts authorities into place. He is the one who can expect value from his creation. So that might take the, the form of praise or worship or devotion, obedience, all of these things. Because he's the maker of heaven and earth, he's the creator of all things, he has the right to expect value from it. And our friends are going right at this idea with their prayer. And then they do something that's pretty neat. Let's go back to the text here. You'll notice that the next section of your text here is offset a little bit, where it says, why do the, the nations rage? Let me flip back so I can make sure. Yeah, so why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? Here they are referencing Psalm 2. There's probably a little note in your Bible that says this. This is one of the messianic psalms. That is a psalm that is explicitly about the promised anointing one that the Jewish people had been waiting for for centuries at this point. There are 16 psalms that are specifically designated this way, and this one right here is one of the most important. It is strategically placed at the beginning of the psalms so that we can understand its importance. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Hang uh, preached from Psalm 1. Uh, which is about the importance of God's word, this one is right behind it. So it's a little clue about what the rest of the book is going to be, be about, and that is the supremacy of God's anointed Messiah. So let's look at a couple things here. First, you can see the terms Gentiles and people. So Gentiles is a pretty straightforward word. This is a word that pe uh, refers to people that are not Jewish. So most of us, I assume. And then there's another word here, that word peoples. There's a little more to this than might meet the eye. In the Old Testament, the peoples, when it's got an S on it, that refers to the nations all around Israel who uh, they were at war with off and on throughout their history. These are groups such as the Moabites and the Amalekites and the Philistines and the Edomites. So God's original covenant with the Jewish people was for them to live right in the center of all of these people. And then through their lifestyle and obedience to God in their covenant and his laws, they would show these peoples what it was like to be in communion with the one true God. These were often tense relationships, fraught with violence and animosity. If you read through the Old Testament, you see these names over and over again in the conflict. So that word here, peoples, is a little signal to us that we're not just talking about people in general, like all the people at Wegmans or all the people that I have to wait behind to get gas at Costco, but the peoples, the ones who stand in opposition 
to the plans of God. So Psalm 2, that messianic psalm, goes on to speak of how the Messiah, this anointed one, will eventually subdue all of these groups and reign over them. So there's a neat little trick in the text that might be hard to see at first, but it really makes this pop, and you guys are in big trouble because I have a laser pointer, and I am going to show you it. So look how they start mapping their prayer to the language in Psalm 2. Do we have this, Dan? Let's look. Oh, excellent. Oh, I'm so excited. All right, so this part right here, this top part, this is the quote from Psalm 2. So look, we've got Gentiles, we've got peoples, We've got the, the rulers, we've got gathered together, we've got his anointed. And then this bottom part here, this is when they start actually praying. So look at the first thing. They say, for truly in this city, they were gathered together. You see that right there? Just like it is up there. So in Psalm 2, where it notes that the rulers were gathered together, they're calling on that right here. It says, in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Again, going back to Psalm 2 where it says that they were gathered together against the anointed. He calls out Herod and Pontius Pilate back up here. The Herod and Pontius Pilate, of course, were the ruling authorities who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. And so they're, they're calling back to that idea here. And then look at this. Along with the Gentiles and the peoples, where's my planet? There we go, of Israel. So Gentiles is a word that they would have used most commonly in, in relation to Rome. So all the soldiers and governors, the, the Roman apparatus that's around them. That's likely what they're referring to there. But then look at what they say here. They say peoples of Israel. They don't say people of Israel. They say peoples of Israel. They're mapping it back to that Old Testament idea of the ones who stood in opposition to God. And then they go on in the prayer to say, hey, all of these things that happened when they crucified Jesus and they punished him, they're using their authority just like you said was going to happen. So, Lord, back in the Old Testament, Psalm 2, when David wrote this, this thing is happening right here. Nothing is happening that you're not aware of and in charge of. This is no surprise to you, and there is no reason for us to be afraid. You see that they are mapping their story to God's story. Now, there's a couple things I want to point out. One is just a little bit of a detour, bear with me here, about how powerful it is to pray through Scripture, especially the Psalms. One of our six pursuits as a church is fervent prayer. So if you don't feel like your prayers are fervent, uh, this is something for you to consider. Some of you may recall this past January where, uh, as a church together, we prayed through a series of Psalms. You remember that, Hang? Yeah, in fact, Hank took the lead for us on that one. There is a fantastic book. In fact, I learned about this book from my friend Dave Kelly called Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. I think it's like five bucks, uh, the Kindle version on Amazon. Like, just buy it right now. It's awesome. You should, you should get it. Uh, it is a wonderful resource to learn about this. There's deep power and grace and transformation when we use God's word as the foundation and even the text for our prayers. And that's exactly what our friends are doing here. We can learn a lot from their example. So the second thing I want to point out is how they are mapping themselves into God's story. Essentially what they're saying is, hey God, you said that the anointed one would be opposed by the peoples, and it is happening just like you laid it out. Just as it is inevitable that the Messiah will overcome the peoples and the rulers, it is inevitable that anyone who stands the work, against the work of Jesus will face the same. This is not a surprise to you, and there's no reason for us to be afraid. And so let's go back to the idea of a story real quick. If every story has a hero, who's the hero of this story? Who's the hero? Is it Peter and John? Nope, 
It is not Peter and John. The hero of this story is Jesus. So Peter and John and their friends, they might be the characters that we're seeing right now, but they're not the hero of the story. And I want us to dig into this a little bit more. There's a strong temptation for us to think that we are the heroes of our own stories. In fact, maybe you've been down to a craft store, maybe you've seen on social media something where like, hey, God is still writing my story. Or when people get engaged or, or you know, get married or something like that, you'll, you'll, you'll see something like, you know, it's, isn't it so great when God writes your love story? And these are lovely sentiments, and I'm sure that the people that make these things are well-intentioned, but friends, let me just say it plainly, this is wrong. God is not writing your story. God is writing his story. His story. In fact, that's the word that we use when we talk about things that happened in the past. We use the word history. His story. And so, this is not your story. You're not the hero. Just like our friends, Peter and John and their friends, they're not the hero of the story. And you're not the hero of your story. God, in the person of Jesus, is. He is both author and hero of his own story. Now, what is this story, big picture? The story of a wonderful, creative, holy God who made a good world, who put humans in it to co-labor with him and enjoy loving community with him. But these humans refused to listen to him. They chose to define good and evil on their own terms. They suffered a fall and brought creation down with it. Then he set in motion his plan to redeem his creation, including humans from their sin and rebellion and the chaos and violence and disorder that it causes. To redeem it and rescue us, he sent his son to earth to offer himself as a substitute for the sin and death that we deserve. But death could not hold him. After three days, he rose from the dead, defeating death and offering us his own resurrected life so that we could trust in him and know and live in the goodness of God again. Then he ascended into heaven, but promised to one day come back to the earth to remake it again once and for all and to rule over it as king forever. It is his story. He is the hero, not us. Now, we're not nothing. We are so valuable to him. He loves us so much that he willingly did this, but it doesn't make us the hero. He is. He's the hero. Now, I realize I may have stepped on a couple toes with this or ruffled some feathers. Some of you are sitting there thinking, hold on just a minute, Matt. I will be in charge of my own story. Thank you very much. I hope you see, though, how liberating this could be. You don't have to be the hero. In fact, why would you want to be? All the, you don't have to live in this pressure of like having to figure it all out yourself or rescue yourself or everyone else. He has done that for you. He's done that for all of us. You don't have to stress out about picking the right college or the right job or which house to buy or filling out that TPS report or any of the things that we get so wrapped up in. You don't have to impress anyone with a fancy house or nice car or big deal job or poster perfect children or any of that. Let it go. It's not your story. Stop trying to write it. If you have put your trust in Jesus, you are already a character in the greatest story ever. And if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, today's your invitation. You too can be part of this story. So with all this in mind, let's go back in our text. What is their prayer? So they've addressed God. They've acknowledged that it's his story. Then what do they actually pray? They pray that God would look upon the threats that they've uh, been going through and grant that his servants would continue to speak your word with all boldness. Again, I'm not sure that that would be my reaction. I would either be full of complaints or I would be looking for an exit strategy, but they don't do that. They pray for boldness, and that's our third point this morning. 
we can tell the story with boldness. They pray for boldness to keep the story going. So I don't know about you guys. When you hear the word bold, what are some of the things that you think of? Colors? Nice. I think of junk food. Yeah, I know. Maybe I'm just a sucker for a good marketing campaign, but I think of like whether it's, you know, Fritos or Cheez-Its, some of these upset, like bold new flavor or this one's bolder than, we thought we were bold last time, but no, we, got, we really got it right that. We really have bold flavor on this one. When I was researching this, do you know that almonds, they're trying to market almonds as having bold flavor? I'm not sure I ever thought of anything less bold than almonds. I mean, I like almonds just fine, but bold with almonds, really? Okay, but yeah, sure, why not? Bold, yeah, so again, maybe I'm just a sucker for an ad campaign, but I don't know, I think of junk food. Or uh, we got all these like talk shows, whether they're like political shows or maybe sports shows. I remember back in the day when ESPN actually showed sporting events. That's, you know, that tells you how old I am. They don't do that anymore. They just have the, all these shows where supposedly bold people just yell at each other about games that they don't even show anymore. So I don't know what's going on with that. But yeah, this idea of bold is that we are loud and brash and we say things that the other person won't say. Now, I'm here to suggest this morning that bold might mean something else. And I'm saying that because of the example that these believers show us this morning. I think the idea that Luke wants us to have is that more than brashness or being louder than the next person, boldness is freedom to be obedient. Boldness is freedom. Specifically, it's freedom to live in the great story. Now, notice what they do with this boldness. It is not to go fight the temple leadership and demand their rights or anything like that. It is not to start a rebellion against the Romans It's not even to get like a mass campaign going on social media or whatever uh, to rally public support for Jesus. No, it's to keep doing the things that Jesus did. In fact, one commentary that I looked at noticed that the prayer here about healing and signs and wonders, it's sort of threading together all these series of stories that Luke told starting in the gospel that bears his name and even here in the the book of Acts. So it's that thread that keeps going through. That's what they're praying for. They're praying for boldness to just keep the story going, to tell people who Jesus is, even when they face opposition. So this kind of boldness uh, makes me think of of someone. There's one of my heroes in the faith is a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. Maybe some of you have heard from her before. I think we have a picture of her on screen. So in 1956, uh, she lived in Ecuador with her husband, Jim, Jim Elliott, who some of you may have heard of. Uh, They were missionaries there. Her husband, Jim, was killed in an outreach to the Honori people. I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but the Honori people there in Ecuador. uh, As he tried to reach out to them so that they could do a Bible translation in their language. Uh, But... They, they killed him and a partner, uh, and, and so tragic things. But what was Elizabeth's response to this? She could have easily returned to the United States and lived out the rest of her life in safety and security, uh, but it's not what she did. Instead, she went back to Ecuador. She moved into their village. She translated the Bible into their language. She taught them about Jesus And she started the first church among that people group in that area. And it's still there today. She kept telling the story of Jesus, even to the people that killed her husband. Does that sound bold? Yeah, I can't imagine. But that's the kind of boldness our believers pray for. 
Let me tell you another story, and this one's from our day and age. This is about a pastor named Michael Lawrence. He's pastor of a church in Portland, Oregon. Some of you may be familiar that, or with the fact that Portland is one of our country's most secular cities. So Michael and his church partner with a ministry called First Image. This is a crisis pregnancy center and post-abortion care center there in Portland. They share an office space. They work very closely together. So on June 27th of this year, just a few days after the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe versus Wade, a violent mob descended on their church and the office building that they share with First Image. They were specifically targeting First Image because of their support for pregnant mothers. Over the course of an hour, this mob sprayed graffiti, shattered windows, and assaulted any number of bystanders. What was the response of Michael Lawrence and his church and First Image? What do you guys think it was? They walked around the neighborhood comforting those who had been upset by the violence. They publicly prayed for the ones who had just assaulted them. They stayed up all night cleaning as best they could so that they could be open for normal service the next morning. And they did. They were open the next morning. And they issued a call for prayer that closed with this. I think Dan's going to put it on the screen for us. This is is Pastor Michael Lawrence. We don't want this to be an opportunity for the enemy to sow seeds of fear, bitterness, or suspicion that would cause us to pull back. We want to be those who demonstrate the truth and power of the gospel as we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So friends, this is the kind of boldness that I would love to see us pray for. And this is the kind of boldness that I would love to see us live out. And let me make a note here. They don't assume to have this in their own power. This is something that they pray for. They ask the Holy Spirit to do this for them. Now, you and I may not be under fire in quite the same way, certainly not as Peter and John and their friends in the passage that we looked at this morning, maybe even not like Pastor Michael Lawrence and this church out in Portland. But we can pray this way too. Another one of our six pursuits as a church is courageous evangelism. That is the boldness to keep telling the story of Jesus. You see, we really do believe Jesus is the hope of the world. We really do believe he's the rightful king who will come and make everything new. We really believe he's the hope of every human heart. And all the things in our world that are broken, even right here in North Virginia, we really do believe he's the one to make them right. There are people all around us that are broken and hurting. They're trapped in their sin. They're just waiting to hear that there's hope and a reason to go on. We all love a good story. Hollywood makes millions of dollars uh, pumping these out every year. But friends, there is no greater story than the one about Jesus. And the beauty of it is it's not just a story that we watch on screen or read about in books or anything like that. It's a story that we can participate in by sharing with others. There might be opposition. In fact, there's bound to be, but it's a story worth telling. It has an amazing hero, and we're free to tell it with boldness because of what he's done for us. The passage notes that when they finished this prayer, the room that they were in shook. I don't know that Catherine Johnson Middle School is going to shake this morning, uh, but as we finish our time together in prayer today, let's see what happens. So I'm going to pray, and the worship team will come back up to lead us. Well, Heavenly Father, we cannot possibly pray better than our friends in the early church did. You are the maker of heaven and earth. 
You are right to expect value and praise and worship and devotion and obedience and confession and repentance from us. You have made us for your pleasure and for your purposes. You are a good God. You are good and right in all that you do. And God, you have given us a good story to tell. As you clean up the mess that we made through our disobedience and sin. And Lord, we live in the fallout from all of that. Lord, all around us, there's, there are people that are broken, that are sinful, that need to hear that there's hope, that there's forgiveness of sin, that there's mercy and joy in life. And all the things that we get wrapped up in, Lord, we don't have to be so emboldened or so trapped by those. We can trust you. You're a good God. You have a good plan for us. You are writing a good story, the best story ever. It has an amazing hero. And Lord, you have invited us, not even just to, to be a part of that story, but to keep telling that story, to keep the story going in the lives of people all around us. And Lord, I confess, I, I don't have the boldness um, that Peter and John and their friends were, friends were praying for. Sometimes I'm just too distracted with things like I feel I have to do. And sometimes to my shame, I, I don't have the boldness to step into a situation and say the words that you might say. And so Lord, I pray for myself that you would grant to me this boldness to speak the word of Jesus. And Lord, I pray for my friends that are here today that we would speak your word with boldness as you continue to stretch out your hand to heal, to show signs and wonders. Lord, we trust that you're going to do this. And so Lord, I pray for us, whatever it is that holds us back from doing that this morning, I pray that you'd reveal it to us. Help us to be honest about that. Help us to lay aside any... Uh, rebellion to that or disobedience or, or just uh, even just minor disagreements, the excuse making that we so often do, Lord. We don't want that. We want to, obedi we want to be obedient to you. And God, I hope we've all gotten a taste of, of what it is to be in the story and the joy and hope and just awesomeness that is a part of that. What you've done for us is amazing. It is the best thing ever. So Lord, give to us, to Fairfax Bible Church right here in Northern Virginia, the boldness to keep telling this story. And we trust that as you do, you will bring hearts to you, that you will receive praise and glory, that you are awesome, and that you will keep writing a good, good story. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.